Talking about why we believe the Bible, part two here. Last week we uh, answered the question really that someone posed to me, uh, somebody who really didn't believe the Bible, and they said, uh, I wish I could write a book that everybody would believe and do exactly what I say. (laughs) And so really the question then is, could someone, could a human actually write a book like the Bible? Is it even possible for a human to do something like that? And the answer is an emphatic no. It is, a, it is impossible for, for a human to do what God did in the Bible. Forty authors over the span of 1,500 years from all different walks of life, and they all have, share the same unified theme. The Bible is 66 books into one book, and it's unified all by the hand of God. And so... We talked about that. It is a miraculous book, and it really is, and what it really is, is the revelation of God to man. That's what the Bible is. If we just looked at nature, we would know that there is a God. Everybody who can't admit that, uh, there's something wrong. Um, You know there's a God just by looking around us. But how do we know who that God is? What's his name? What does he want? What does he desire from us? And that is where the Bible steps in. That's where God's Word steps in. God communicates with these creatures that he's created. Today, we're going to talk about inspiration. Let me ask you this question first. What's the most inspiring book outside of the Bible that you've ever read? The most inspiring book that you've ever read? I was thinking about that question, and it was hard for me to pick, personally. Um, But most of the inspiring books that I've read... uh, Almost all of them, as I was thinking, come down to the the life story of a missionary, usually, or some great person that God rescued and saved. But there was one book that I think I read as a teenager that probably really set me on the path of really enjoying great books by uh, by Christians and the lives of Christians. And uh, so maybe the book itself isn't the most inspiring book, but maybe the timing in my life really, it hit me probably is the most inspiring throughout my life. But the book is called Run, Baby, Run by Nikki Cruz. It's the story, it's the life story of Nikki Cruz written by himself. And it's really the story of how a bloodthirsty gang member was led to the Lord by a Midwestern pastor who just decided, I'm going to go, I just feel led of God to go to the inner city of New York and talk to people about Jesus. He didn't know who, he didn't know anybody there. He just sensed a need. He went there and eventually led Nikki Cruz to the Lord. Nikki Cruz got saved and became, a, became, an, evan- became an evangelist. An amazing story. Uh, David Wilkerson wrote the story of his life, of Nikki's life. Uh, his book is called The Cross and the Switchblade. You may have heard that one. But that book, I remember as a teenager, lit a fire under me. It was very inspirational. It, it uh, made me hungry to, to see God work in people's lives. And today we're going to talk about uh, the inspiration of the scriptures. But we don't mean that the Bible is an inspiring book. <laughs> so I'm changing course on you. I'm not saying that the Bible is an inspiring book, even though it is. In fact, it is the most inspiring book that's ever, ever been written. But when we talk about inspiration today, it has a much deeper meaning than just the simple fact that it's an inspiring book. What we're talking about is that these words in the Bible are from the very mouth of God himself. And that's what we believe as as Christians. So we're going to talk about the doctrine of inspiration 
And uh, this is a crucial doctrine for every Christian to know. So, all right, so let's start with a very key passage on the Bible's claims that it is the Word of God. And the, the, the key passage in the Bible, there's several, but this is the key one. 2 Timothy 3.16. By the way, you should have two 3.16s in the Bible memorized. John 3.16 and 2 Timothy 3.16. Every Christian should have it memorized. If I was Pastor Mike, I would say you can't go to heaven unless you memorize it. But, he's a, but, but, uh, but I won't say that. But anyway... So 2 Timothy 3.16, a, a crucial, crucial passage. All Scripture, every word is important here. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is a very important passage. Let's, let's talk about inspiration for a minute. That word in there, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration is the Greek word theonoustos, literally meaning God breathed. Theo means God, noustos is breath or air. This is, uh, this is a, a word that is so important to the believers. It is, it is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith that all scripture came from the mouth of God. But then we ask the question, well, wait a second. If you're saying all Scripture came by the mouth of God, wait a second. Didn't man write the Bible? Weren't there human authors? And since human authors wrote it down, how can it be God-breathed? And if God breathed it, if God is the author of the Bible, then why are there so many different writing styles in the Bible? You go from book to book and author to author, and it's, it's very different. And so what I'm going to give to us this morning is a great definition of inspiration by the late theologian Charles Ryrie. What we're going to do is I'm going to read it to you here, and then we're going to break it down. You're going to fill in your blanks there on your, on your notes. And I think this is a good way to really explain it. He, he does a good job of concisely stating, I think, how, what this inspiration is all about. So here it is. God's superintendence of human authors, so that using their own individual personalities... They composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. So let's break this down phrase by phrase and we'll get a clearer view of what inspiration is. All right. Definition of inspiration. The first phrase there is God's superintendence of human authors. God's superintendence of human authors. The Bible's clear claim. There's no getting around it. The Bible's clear claim is that. The Bible is not a product of human beings. It is a product of God. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Scripture is not man's wisdom. The Bible is not man's intellect coming through. It's straight from the Holy Ghost himself, straight from Holy Spirit. Over 3,800 times in the Old Testament, the prophets say, thus saith the Lord, or something, or a similar phrase to that, thus saith the Lord. That's almost 4,000 times. That is quite a claim. You better be careful if you're going to claim, thus saith the Lord. But this is not just an Old Testament thing. First Timothy 3.16 that we looked at just a minute ago, 
is primarily speaking about the Old Testament. All Scripture, Paul is writing, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He's mainly referring to the Old Testament because that was the primary Scriptures that they had. But what about the New Testament? Even among Paul and those, was it considered Scripture? Was it considered God's Word to them? Absolutely. In fact, look at what Peter says about Paul's writings. This is Peter, New Testament, Paul, New Testament. Here's what Peter says. 2 Peter 3.16. As also in all his epistles, Peter's talking about Paul, as in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Thank you, Peter, for saying that, because I thought I was alone. Paul's writings are hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they, all, as they do also the other scriptures, the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. So Peter is saying, Paul's writing scripture, just like all the other people are writing scripture, but this scripture is hard to understand, but it's still scripture, just like all the others. But he also infers here that because of scriptural writings, and, and, and also they're already considering, so if you think about it, Peter is saying, I am now considering this New Testament writing as as a piece of scripture. And also look at this one, 1 Timothy 5.8. Here's Paul talking, 5.18. Paul says this, For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. This is an interesting one to me. So Paul's quoting an Old Testament passage. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. And he's saying, The scripture saith, The scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Well, that's a nice scripture um, referring to oxen and, and uh, not muzz- letting them eat while they're working. But then he also says, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, before really my study of this, this time, I kind of just assumed that was an Old Testament passage as well. Uh, but actually, this part, this last part, the laborer is worthy of his reward is from Luke 10, verse 7. It's Jesus speaking, and Paul was saying, so So now think about that. Paul is saying that what Luke just wrote is Scripture. He's saying that is Scripture just as much as the Old Testament. He's relating it just like Deuteronomy. The New Testament is just as much Scripture as the Old Testament. There are only a few books out there in the world that would dare to make the claim that this is the Word of God. Or thus, thus saith the Lord. There are only a few. Uh, the Quran is one of them. And we already talked about that last week. So we believe exactly as the Bible states. God breathed into man the words to write. And so our definition here as we're looking at it says superintendence. God's superintendence. Now when, when this says superintendence, we don't mean that God is just sitting there watching. And these men are writing and God's not involved. No, God is act, actively giving the actual words to those men to write. And as we'll see in the definition later, that's obviously uh, the point of this definition. Now, there's some debate among scholars, and that's, and I don't, it, it, this is, I think, a lot of semantics, but there's some debate about to the degree that which God was involved in writing the scriptures. Uh, but again, I think most of it's just words. Because any faithful conservative Bible scholar will agree and that it believes that God breathed out every word. They, they know God is the author of every word of Scripture and that he used human authors to write those things. We all ag- agree to that. 
So we, we may not have the exact mechanics worked out of how God did it, uh, but how could we know exactly the mechanics of how God did this? Um, this is a miraculous book. This is a miraculous book that came from the mind and the heart of God. You don't figure out the mechanics of a miracle. You can't do that. John R. Rice, he, he likens the miracle of writing scripture to the miracle of the virgin birth. Uh, it was God's work, but there was human involvement. God used Mary. To what degree was it God doing, uh, making sure that Jesus was born from a virgin? And to what degree was it Mary? Well, God was in all of it. But Mary was just as much in it too. So there's, there's also something else that's very important here when we think about how this all worked, where God spoke to each individual man and gave them the words. Well, how did he do that? Um, because these words were given directly from God, there's, this also means we have to keep in mind that there are no mistakes in the words that God gave. Because God doesn't make mistakes. And that's called the inerrancy of Scripture. We'll, we'll see that in a future lesson. But for now, keep in mind that God's guiding hand kept every author from making a mistake as they wrote. And he guided them. And... But when they were writing, they, now, again, this does not mean that Moses, David, Peter, Paul, all those guys never made any mistakes. Absolutely, they made mistakes. But when they went to go write the word of God and God gave them the words to say, they were kept by the power of God from ever making a mistake. And speaking of those authors, God was able to keep in, intact their own personalities. So here's what we're saying. God's superintendence of human authors using their own personalities. So God, he's, he's through the Holy Spirit, he is speaking to these human authors. They sit down, they're writing something, and, uh, and God is speaking to them, but they maybe don't fully understand everything even that they're, that they're writing. But God makes sure he wants, or what he wants is written while he preserves their unique personality. And that's why we see so much diversity in the Bible. Because, because God does not use them as robots. I was thinking this is, the, the, the human authors of the Bible were not little series. <laughs> you know, I, I better be careful even what I say right now. She's listening. But uh, you don't say, you know, hey, uh, Alexa, <laughs> uh, here, write this. Uh, that's not how God did this. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit did give them the exact words to speak. But he was moving on them through their personalities, through their experiences, through their abilities. And each prophet had a different style. And he moved through that for them to write in their mind, in their heart. They were hearing these things, but they weren't even fully understanding as they were writing. Uh, and that's then how this breath of God came through each individual personality. As I was going through this, my mind went to Mrs. Nancy Craig and <laughs> how she plays all these different instruments. It's the, it's the same breath. <laughs> it's the same person breathing. But every instrument has a different sound, has a different personality, has a different style. But the person, the author behind it is the same. This is what God did. 
And this is what really makes the Bible so unique and so powerful. It's not one human author. It's 40 different human authors. Uh, there's one breath behind it, behind it all, but there's such incredible unity in the message. But God keeps these personalities intact, and he, he lets this diversity of style happen. And I love it. Some would say then, well, okay, well, doesn't that lessen the quality of the scriptures? Or doesn't it taint the inspiration of God, as God if God is letting their personalities speak? Actually, listen to this, you could actually make the case that God's sovereignty and power is even more evident through this. Think about this. God, knowing what he wanted to speak in the Bible ahead of time, actually gave the writers the personalities that would reflect exactly what, he would, what would fit the plan that he wanted written. Before all time, he knew what he was going to do, and he just made it all work. Because his plan is to have a book that would speak to every person, no matter where they came from, the diverse people of, of all the entire globe. They would find something special in the Word of God that speaks to their heart. And God, in his wonderful diversity, would put all that together. And by the way, we still see this today. God does the same thing all around us. God, God just does, it's, we don't live in a black and white world, you know. It's, I mean, I look outside, there's a bunch of color everywhere. It's, God loves diversity in every way. Uh, scripture's not being written today, but God uses the diversity of people, and, and you can see his diversity in nature, and you see it everywhere. God loves diversity. So, God's superintendence of human authors using their own personalities, they composed and recorded. Now, this, this phrase speaks to the method of how the authors wrote God's words. So sometimes the men would sit down, uh, as the Bible says, these holy men of God spake. Sometimes these men would sit down and just do a direct recording of what God was doing. For example, the Ten Commandments. That's a direct, exact, line for line. You just record exactly what God says. Or the book of Revelation. Look at what it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is John, the Apostle John. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and... By the way, that's, a, that's Sunday, the Lord's Day. I, li I like when pe we, people call it the Lord's Day rather than Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And here's what God, or Jesus said to him, What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. You just record what you've seen. Just record it. Uh, so what you see in a book, this is recording. Now, more often, though, the authors, when they would sit down, were composing something. And they were composing something as the Holy Spirit was moving them or speaking to them, as the Holy Spirit, if you will, downloaded things to their heart. For example, Psalm 51, verse 1. Uh, David says, have mercy upon me, O God. I mean, this is a heart cry. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David had just sinned with Bathsheba. And this is a heart's cry of repentance and confession before God. He wasn't, David wasn't sitting there asking, God, do you want me to put a comma after me or a semicolon here? Or do you want me to do that? David sat down with pen in hand and just began to be overwhelmed by his emotion and the Holy Spirit from deep inside of him 
began to spring up some words that were from God himself. And God gave him the exact words to say. They were more than just emotion. They were God speaking. And this is the message then that God wanted to get out to the entire world. David, through your heart, through your pain, through the things that you went to, I want you to compose something that is from the very heart of God, from the very mouth of God, that speaks to people who are in the same situation that you're in. Here's what we need to understand about the Bible. The Bible is essentially a relational book. It is not a book of abstract ideas that are just all strung together, like the Quran. The Bible was not meant to answer every conceivable question you could come up with. What does the atom consist of? How are diseases cured? That's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is not a science book, but where it speaks on science, it is without error. The Bible is not a history book, but where it speaks on history, it is without error. The Bible is not a financial book, but where it speaks on finances, it is without error. No, the Bible is a relational book. That is ultimately what it is. It's God using writings, he's using words, human words, to communicate something to the human race. And the primary thing that he's communicating in this whole book is the redemption of mankind. That is the theme of the book. And the fact, listen, the fact that salvation is the focus of God's word tells us something. The fact that the most important book that's ever been here and the whole theme of it is how to get a man saved. That tells you that is, the, that is man's greatest need. It is not our greatest need to have another psychology book or another financial book. That is not what we need, most of all. We need people just to respond to the truth that's in the Bible. And that is really what the Bible is. It is a love letter from Almighty God to the humans that he's created. As Adrian Rogers said, the Bible has one problem, sin. The Bible has one villain, Satan. The Bible has one hero, Jesus. The Bible has one purpose, to glorify God. Now, in in the conclusion of the entire Bible, here's the the simple conclusion of the entire Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's summed up right there. By the way, you may already know this, but you know if you took God, the words in John 3.16, God only, Son, perish, everlasting life. The, the first letter of each of those word, words spell gospel. The entire gospel is right there in John 3.16. The Bible is also without error. God's superintendents of human authors using their own personalities. They composed and recorded without error. And we're, again, we're going to talk about this probably next week. The inerrancy of Scripture, the doctrine of inerrancy. But for now, let's just agree we believe it. All right? It's without error. But here is a clarifying statement on how this worked. His re- revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. Now, when we speak of inspiration, we're speaking of the original autographs or the original manuscripts, the the written pages that David himself wrote, that Moses, uh, when he got out the animal skins or whatever he was writing on, and he began to say or compose and write exactly what God told him and 
Jeremiah and Paul, those original writings uh, on papyrus or animal skin, whatever it might have been, those are the actual, every word was exactly perfect. Now, we don't have any of the original autographs today. We have manuscripts. Uh, But this is not a problem. Manuscript evidence, none of the original autographs are survived, but copies are called manuscripts. We can be completely confident that the manuscripts are extremely accurate copies. The reason is because, one of the reasons is because the Jewish copyists were absolute experts in copying a document. Um, Again, we're going to go into a little more detail about this in a future lesson, but for now, I do want to let you know, one of the things that these guys, these scribes that would uh, actually copy the scriptures, they would count every letter. They would count every word. And, and then they would compare. Does my copy have the exact number of letters and the exact number of words as the original that I'm copying from? And they would double check and check and double check. Uh, there's People that talk about the the methods that they use, that even if a king were to walk in the door, you cannot lift your head if you're writing the name of God on on your copy. When they knew it was scripture, they put all their effort into making it perfect. And now, was that kind of a method effective? Well, let's look at this. Until the 1950s, the oldest Hebrew Old Testament available to us was dated in uh, AD 900. So if you think about that, since Malachi wrote the last book of the Old Testament in around 400 B.C., there's a span there of about 1,300 years. So the, the earliest copy we would have would be 1,300 years old. But then they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that gave manuscripts that dated all the way back to 200 B.C. Now they're only uh, 200 years old. So what did they find? when they compared those old ones that were a thousand years older than the, than the ones we, we already had, they found they were almost exactly alike. There, any variance in them at all was very minor. See, the, in the New Testament, uh, manuscripts have very similar accuracy. In fact, we have thousands, there are thousands and thousands of manuscript copies of the New Testament. And every time they unearth a new manuscript, it coincides almost perfectly with the ones we already have. There are so many thousands that they can compare and make sure we have an accurate rendering that we are certain this is an accurate reflection of the originals. They're written, again, on papyrus and animal skins, and and even complete New Testament manuscripts have survived from the 4th century A.D. So, And we have some early translation from the 2nd century. In fact, the oldest, I'm going to share with you, the oldest piece of manuscript, New Testament manuscript that we have so far. It's called the John Rylands Fragment. And here it is in the British Museum. It's a little guy. Um, but they say that that is dated 117 to 135 A.D. That is so old that if, you, if John wrote late in his life, this is from like John chapter 13, I believe, this little passage, they compare it with with the manuscripts they already have and with our Bible, and it's exactly the same. But if John was writing this late in his life, then it's possible that this copy is only about 50 years after John actually wrote his, his gospel. So as scholars continue to study, compare these manuscripts, continue to find new things and unearth new things, every time they, 
they uh, want to put in a new highway in Israel, they find a whole bunch more uh, stuff underneath. And they keep on finding the word of God that, and that it is miraculously preserved throughout the centuries. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the point is, there's no need to worry this morning that, there is, that we have lost something of the word of God. That any of those authors wrote. It's not been corrupted. It's been copied. And God's made sure of that. What we hold today is the very word of God. But even with all this, our confidence really is not fully in the John Ryland's fragment or any of those things. It's really in what God has already said he would do. And that is that God has told us he will preserve his word. Take a few of the things that God has said. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 1 Peter 1, 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. And then Jesus himself for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, or pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is a small appendage that differentiates similar looking letters in the Hebrew alphabet. For example, in English, if you wrote a capital C and then you wrote a capital G next to it, it's almost exactly the same except for that little line and that would be considered a tittle, if you would. You are so smart. I am not smart. I, re- I read this in a book. <laughs> but the point of the statement is, of what Jesus is saying here, is every letter, uh, every word, every little piece of a word in the Bible is going to remain on this earth until everything in it is fulfilled. And there's never going to be a time where God's word is not present on this earth. Uh, but think about this. Think about this. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus also told us this. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So if God commands us to live by the word of God, wouldn't he have to preserve it for us so that we could live by it? As we have seen, God's promised to do so, and he will. So we can be confident today that the Bible we have is the word of God, and it is indestructible. No one will destroy it. Actually, the indestructibility of the Bible is another proof that it is a miraculous book. Did you know many people throughout the centuries have made huge efforts to destroy the the Bible? The Roman emperor, Diocletian, he decreed in 303 AD that every Bible should be destroyed. See, he, somebody had told him that if he destroys the Bible, he would destroy Christianity. Because Christians are people of the book. Yes, we are. He thought that he succeeded, and he raised a column even with this inscription on it. Extincto nomine Christiantorum. The name of Christian is extinguished. Ten years later, Constantine succeeded him and replaced all the pagan symbols with the cross. <laughs> and we still have the Bible today. Voltaire, the French atheist, he boasted this. He said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Listen to this. 20 years later, after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house for printing the Bible. 
And even further than that, and later it became the Paris headquarters for the British and Foreign Bible Society, and they stored and distributed Bibles that went throughout all of Europe. (laughs) Just to kind of rub it in his nose, I think. (laughs) Generations follow generations, yet it lives. Nations rise and fall, yet it lives. Kings, dictators, presidents come and go, yet it lives. Torn, condemned, burn, yet it lives. Hated, despised, cursed, yet it lives. Doubted, suspected, criticized, yet it lives. Damned by the atheists, yet it lives. Scoffed at by scorners, yet it lives. Exaggerated by fanatics, yet it lives. Misconstrued and misstated, yet it lives. Uh, Ranted and raved about, yet it lives. Its inspiration denied, yet it lives. Yet it lives as a lamp to our feet. Yet it lives as a light to our path. Yet it lives as the gate to heaven. Yet it lives as a standard for childhood. Yet it lives as a guide for youth. Yet it lives as an inspiration for the matured. Yet it lives as a comfort for the age. Yet it lives as food for the hungry. Yet it lives as water for the thirsty. Yet it lives as rest for the weary. Yet it lives as light for the heathen. Yet it lives as salvation for the sinner. Yet it lives as grace for the Christian. To know it is to love it. To love it is to accept it. To accept it means eternal life. (laughs) That is the word of God. Willard Johnson wrote that. One important note here. The words, the very words themselves are inspired and not just the thoughts. The spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. This may seem a minor point to you that the words are inspired and not just the thoughts. But see, it's not a minor thing. The words themselves, we don't just get the gist of the Bible. (laughs) Oh yeah, I read it, I got the gist of it. No, you don't get the gist of the Bible. The words are God-breathed, every single one of them. And that's clear from 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's what we believe as Christians. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that means this. The plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, the theologians say. Plenary means full or all. Verbal means the words themselves. Inspiration means God breathed. And so when we say this is our doctrine, this is our doctrine, plenary verbal inspiration. No one should ever create a translation of the Word of God with the premise of translating thought for thought. If every word is inspired, then every word is important to know and should be translated word for word. By the way, that's one reason the King James Version is preferred here. Because what it does is, very smartly, it italicizes the words that are added for understanding. And that's really helpful to know that every word is inspired by God. The quick note on plenary, when it says plenary, full or all, that means no matter how trivial a passage is or it seems, it's inspired just as much as the important parts of the Bible. (laughs) They're all important. The genealogies are just as much God's word as Romans chapter 8. Which means we should be students of the Word of God, all of it. I want to give you one quick example as we close here. That was so beautiful as I was being reminded how every little thing in the Bible is important. Look at what Jesus did. Matthew chapter 22. Here Jesus talking about the resurrection. But, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Listen to what Jesus says now. Pay close attention. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus bases his whole argument for the reality of life after death on the use of the present tense rather than the past tense of the word 
of a word in the Old Testament. He says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. Meaning, Abraham, Isaac, or Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive right now in heaven. And I am their God. And so Jesus says, uh, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Every word and every tense of the word is important. God works amazingly, amazingly through the simplest of, the, of words in his, in his word here in, his, in the Bible. A couple weeks ago, I preached at a funeral outdoors. And uh, as I was talking, I uh, was talking about this wonderful, beautiful story of Lazarus and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And that where we get the shortest verse in the entire Bible, two small words, Jesus wept. I was talking about that and ended that. And the next Sunday, um, the, the mother of the daughter who passed away, she came up to me and said, I have to tell you something. There was something you said. My brother-in-law was, uh, was there at the funeral, and he says he wanted nothing to do with God. He wants nothing to do with the Bible. He's always said that. He said, but there was, she said, there was something you said. There's two words that you said that just created such a hunger in him. And he's asked us now to get a Bible. And I, he wants to know more about Jesus. And I said, well, were they? He said, you said, Jesus wept. I didn't say those words. It's God's words. Jesus wept. Simple words. Two small words. And yet God's powerful, incredible words just dug into the heart of somebody and said, this is what you have been looking for. God uses every single word, even the small ones. This is truly the word of God. Let's pray. Father.